Welcome back to the Air It Out podcast. I am your host, per usual, Lucas Shu. We have another guest on this week's episode of the podcast. We're here with Paul Duncan. Paul's been on the podcast a couple of times now. You consider him a very good friend of the podcast. Uh, last time we spoke to him, we were talking about the draft and the draft review. And now Paul is a scouting coordinator at Expand the Box Score. I'll leave the link to his work at Expand the Box Score and Expand the Box Score in general in the podcast description. But, Paul, how's it going, man? Uh, it's going great. I'm uh, happy to be talking with you again. I think we're this is like the fourth time we've done this. So uh, I think once once you get to five appearances on another person podcast, you're just kind of uh, your title essentially becomes pretty much co-host. Essentially, uh, Paul is now a scoring coordinator, like I said. So he's getting a little big time for us here. Uh, Paul, I got to ask you about this: the scouting coordinator job, the expand the box score job, just all of it. So like, how did you? Get started with the expanded box score. How'd you find them? What was your whole deal with them? Uh, it was a very interesting process with some uh, weird twists and turns. So essentially, um, my last September, I wanted to write a draft guide, write a whole bunch of scouting reports, so I can send them into NFL teams, send them into established media people, and say, hey. I'm Paul, I scout football players, I know what I'm doing. Um, and then in doing so, I kind of learned about like actually trying to format a draft guide and building your, building your own systems and making sure that you have a scale that works, um, that you have a, scout, a scouting formula, like a format that works. And I realized that, that just that in itself almost took like a month of my time before even scouting, but I eventually did so. And then when I went to the Senior Bowl, I had 15 scouting reports all very nicely put together in a, uh, a little um, uh, mini book that I uh, put together, like a handbook. It was like 30 pages. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, was, I was handing it out to people at the Senior Bowl. And there I met a man named uh, Cyril Patton. And he liked the work that I was doing. We both um, worked at the same company at different times, so we had training from the same person, so our methods were very similar. And he wanted to hop in on the project. So um, he hopped in, and then I found two other uh, co-workers at PFF who were uh, willing to, um, who were interested in, like, the way I do things and, like, how things were organized. And uh, we wrote more reports together. And, but then I realized we're not going to get a full draft guide. I know nothing about publishing. We need to essentially find like an already established site that would take us on. And the first site we started with was DraftRite. And, uh, that seemed like a pretty good place. Um, we thought the, uh, founder would just kind of stay out of the way and let us, um, write high quality draft, uh, content, support, support our mission of a great 2021 guide. But um, he forgot that he was running a draft um, a draft site, and his Twitter turned into being kind of like a wannabe Ben Shapiro. <laughs> so he, it was just nothing but right-wing politics um, over and over. And some uh, he said some things, and some, li- um, some lines were kind of pushed and touched. Uh, other people that we respect in the industry were, call- were calling him out. Um, and we just really didn't want to be a part of that. We're, we're, we're in this for football. 
we're track we're trying to scout. We don't need to get into politics drama. So we we pulled out. We were essentially on um, scout free agents, and apparently there was enough buzz behind our work that people like fan sided were interested in us. Um, pe- like lots of like C and B list draft sites really wanted to bring us on. But eventually we found a home with Expand the Box Score. Um, they were start. Um, they are a site that uh, sells like target statistics for college, and they have all these tools to help sort your statistics really well. They have like cool graphs and charts, uh, lots of stats, and they make it look pretty. Uh, they don't have any like actual like game charting. It's just all stuff that you can get from like play by plays and box scores. Right. So they're so yeah. They brought us in. They gave us the um, they gave us the infrastructure and a Twitter account with uh, it was like three thousand something followers when we got there, but we're working to get it up to uh, it's over four thousand now. So he gave us the platform, and he's really excited about the draft guide, and he's uh, he he said he he will um, work on the page layout just on his own, and we're like, wow, this is kind of perfect. And, yeah, since over the past, like, month and a half, we've been putting out two in-depth preseason scouting reports or scouting notes on players as uh, impressive and important as Panay Sowell. But we're also scouting the little little guys. Uh, We scouted Michael Carter from North North Carolina. I scouted Tuff Borland, and as (laughs) things... Stand right now, I would not draft Tough Borland in any round. So it's very NFL focused um, articles. We try to write every uh, article as if an NFL general manager or an NFL scout would read this. So very, very in depth. Mm-hmm. You aren't going to hear um, silly media cliches in our work. We're not going to hear this guy plays with a chip on his shoulder or just the normal, silly, meaningless scouting cliches that people who are more television people would uh, split, spit out. We're trying to be the, re- the real deal and provide the best high-quality NFL draft content possible. Right. Yeah, I... Uh... We'll talk about Tuff Borland later on, but he, he's not that good. I, I've seen some of his film, too. It's it's a little ugly. But, uh, no, I've, I've read a lot of your guys' stuff over at Expand the Box Score, and i got to say, I'm really impressed. I've read a couple of your articles, or some, some of the contributors' articles, and I really like it. Like you said, there's not a lot of uh, cliches. There's not a lot of uh, spicing it up with just words to make it sound pretty to make it look pretty it's just this guy is what he is and you have i'm just looking at one of the articles right now on sean wade and it has the overview of who he was before he came to the buckeyes and talking about a little bit about him his strengths as air to improve a little bit of injury concerns and projection later on uh i really am impressed with what you guys have done over here and i've always known that you uh had a draft guy coming out and you wanted to make a draft guy and you're working on it i saw the early on uh stages of it and the outlines of it and i've always known you're a good scout so i'm really happy to see that you're at expand the box score now but uh Mm -hmm. i've always known you as just doing everything on your own for the draft guide when you first started doing it i saw the beginning stages of it like i said 
I have seen your work and your writing, and we've talked about ideas before and all that stuff. But now with the Expand the Box score, you're just not a contributor. You're just not a writer. Uh, you are a coordinator. So I want to talk to you about what's it like transitioning from being on your own, kind of a writer, kind of a contributor person, to now being a coordinator who was kind of directing a whole thing and kind of leading a whole thing and leading this group of uh, contributors that I have. What is it like from like transitioning from yourself doing all your own work to leading a group of people? Um, I think the first and biggest thing is, is when I created like, well, I never really created any of my skills and methods. They were based off of what I learned at Sports Info Solutions, but there were a whole bunch of things in this, in, in like, SIS's got um guidebook that I just kind of thought was really unnecessary like their overall overall scales would like skip certain numbers because our overall grades are based off of 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 roles that a player would play in the NFL so for example like a wide receiver can be a 66 or a 63 but there is no grade for a 64 so we um I went through and smoothed out all the scales and made sure there are, were roles for each number. And when I create, when I create the systems and the grades, I know what, I know what they mean. I know I can kind of apply a tricky scenario where somebody's on the border and be able to, to discern whether I think this person would grade out as a 6-5 or a 6-4 with versatility being the thing that, um, flip, uh, flips over is the deciding factor, but if I'm not writing this, if I don't do my stuff well, another person might look at this draft gu- um, draft guide and draft scale and not know what, um, how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what happened with, um, uh, I had a little experience with this last year where somebody um, was doing a report on T. Higgins, and his T. Higgins grade was like a 6-3, and he said, well, um, the guy's not versatile. He can only play outside. And if you think a guy can only, um, I don't think he can be a true number two wide receiver out of the gate, which would be like a six eight. And in between there requires versatility. So I have to give him a six three, a lower grade than what he deserves. So it's like when you work with other people, other people can find like poke holes in your methods. What about this? What about this? So when you, um, what I did when I knew that other people would uh go through this stuff is I built what I called the draft guide guide um or the DGG mm-hmm. so um and that kind of detailed all um all of the scales all of the um overall grades for the positions and we were I uh I workshopped it with uh, Searle and the scouts until we made sure that there aren't too many holes to poke that every trait we look at makes sense and Every um, grade that we give is clear and concise. That's probably the was probably the most difficult thing is building something that is professional so that NFL teams would be able to understand it, um, something that the scouts themselves can understand easily, and something that a reader can understand easily. And making sure that all of those things are taken into account. Was uh, it was a fun process trying to figure it out, but mm-hmm. there there definitely was some times where it was like, oh, I'm not sure if I really want to read uh, um, use a different word or make put this trait in this trait, or 
use this grade to describe this exact player. So that was probably one of the most interesting parts of it. Right. And uh, the draft guy thing, I, I know what you mean by the grade aspect thing and trying to make sure it lines up. Because in your mind, when you're reading it, you can under, you understand because you're thinking to yourself, you understand everything. It makes sense to you because it's what you write and you just get yourself because obviously it's you writing this. But it's a little bit more of a challenge, a little more of a learning curve, if you will, when you're having a whole group of, for in your case, you have a whole group of uh, contributors who are scouts, and then you got your audience who's reading it. It makes it a little bit more of a challenge because you have to make sure that, obviously you understand it, but you have to make sure it lines up to everybody else's understanding and make sure there's it's a solid system and it makes sense. Because when you're just doing it by yourself, you can go, I get what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. And you can read your own work because it's you. But I get your saying when you're coming from and talking about how it's a little bit of a challenge, a little bit of a learning curve just with everybody else. Yes. And making sure everybody everybody's on the same page, everybody under, uh, understands everything uh, is good. And also just like listen, uh, listening to them, like um, I'll, um, we had a... Um, run where we were emailing other like scouts and industry people we know and we're saying hey come look at our uh, our guide is there anything we should add or subtract to it and being able to listen to other people and say um, for example um, I'm looking at the guide right now for our cornerbacks um, one of the people suggested that key and diagnose should be a good trait for a corner being able to read what's going on and diagnose it when he was coaching or or um, playing, that was the term they used. I, I was thinking that key and diagnose should be inside of instincts. So mm-hmm. being able to take that, knowing that the phrase key and diagnose is very important to the scouting type people, I'm, I'm going to now add uh, keying and diagnosing as something that you would look for when you're evaluating instincts. Right. And I think that's smart because... Obviously, you're still doing the industry, I'm still doing the industry, so the best thing that, like, people who are in our spot can do, especially with, with you guys, and you're building this whole new draft guide, and it's your first time working at Spanish Box Score, and you want to make this draft guide great, obviously, it's yeah. a great idea to always talk to people outside of your group and talk to other scouts, talk to people who are or former scouts, talk to head coaches, and get their opinions on things, and I think it's a really, really good idea with that. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because... You want to build this on a very good foundation. Yep. And if the foundation isn't there, then people are going to find cracks in the product. So making sure the foundation, the skeleton, all that stuff is locked in, uh, locked in place and rock, uh, really good. That will build the foundation. And then I trust, I trust myself. I trust all of the scouts that we have on their team that they can write quality scouting reports. And if all of this stuff is taken care of, it'll make their job a lot easier. Right. It In the long run, oh, it makes things so much easier when you have a solid foundation to work with and you can know what you're going to write ahead of time and get kind of a framework in your head almost. Because I know when I'm writing articles, it, it was at first it's a little, my first start writing anyways, it's a little jarring at first because I didn't know how I was going to write this or how I'm going to write this or my mock drafts I did back in a uh, springish time, it was kind of jarring at first because 
you didn't have the framework. I didn't, I didn't have the framework built around how I was going to write my mock drafts and how I was going to design things and how I was going to type things out. And with this, in your case, in the draft guide, it's going to help tremendously, in my opinion, to have this kind of solid foundation and framework you can base things off of. And it's going to make scouting easier and more accurate because you're not just going to take less time and you're going to be able to devote more time to scouting. And just to make things sound a lot more fluid and to make things easier to read. And I think it's a, a really important thing to have, especially in something big like a draft guide. Yeah, and one of the most important uh important things or one of the key things in scouting is knowing what you're looking for. Like it can be very easy getting lost watching a football player and trying to trying to scout them because it's without this kind of framework because you might see a player do a good thing and that um, make a really good play and run defense, but you might also see them blow a gap and on uh, not having like, almost like a checklist, a mental checklist of these are the things I need to look uh, look for, look at the player doing, and these are signs that the player might be good at them. You're going to end up writing a very bland, basic report where you're going to be writing down words that don't really mean anything. Right. Right. I started looking into more scouting, too. I built a kind of a uh, – just basically using Google Docs, I built – put in a bunch of prospects I'm looking at and um, doing a mini Sky Report for Strengths weaknesses and film I've watched. And it's it you need, you need to have a mental checklist almost because you can see a player do one thing and it's not to say it's a highlight real play, but you can kinda of get lost in what's going on in the field because you see one thing and you kinda of just get lost every every play and you gotta figure out what's right, what's wrong and it's easy to know just say you know football and you can watch a guy if he's good or not, but it's a little more nuanced in scouting. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one thing to say, hey, this guy is a good football player, but it's a lot harder to, um, to say, this guy has good instincts. And it's even mm-hmm. harder to say, what makes you say he has good instincts? Like, that that right there is where we kind of, like, draw the line between, like, a scout that's just kind of out there watching tape, putting reports together, and a scout that we we would want on the team. Um, a regular scout might say, yeah, he's got good instincts, but we want our scouts to know exactly what uh, what that means. Like, oh, this this guy is very good at recognizing misdirection and misdirections and counters. This man, this uh, player, always attacks the correct gap. Uh, he has very, um, very good footwork when uh, strafing on the line of scrimmage. The player doesn't um, plays very controlled and doesn't get too aggressive chasing the backside. Th- things like things of that nature are is what's separating like the average person trying to break into the industry and what we're looking for. Right, right. And to t- touch on that, I'm just looking at your reports pulled up. Um... On Tuff Borland, your favorite player ever, uh, it's about the same thing with the instincts. You said shows good instincts and knows what gap needs to attack. He, uh, you talked about he's rarely fooled by misdirection plays. Uh, he's plays under control, rarely over pursues and scraping the scraping the front side edge. You talk about these things that are in a broad compassing our instincts and our overall our instincts. But mm-hmm. you don't just go. He has good instincts. You kind of get into what those instincts are and what he's good at almost and kind of bringing in some more detail to just other than instincts. I always hear from uh, scouts and 
scouts on Twitter and scouts in the NFL and all this stuff, when I first started uh, getting into scouting and watching college football, uh, I always heard he has good instincts, he has good instincts. I'm like, okay, I get what that means, but what does it mean at the same time? Like, exactly. What do you mean by he has good instincts? Like, I get the term instincts and I get it in football, but I need more detail. And I think a really good thing that at least you guys have done is bringing more light onto instincts and bringing more detail in it. It's not just instincts. It's this. He's good at yada yada. Like from tough world, he's good at, he's doesn't get full of misdirection. And he's a really, really good thing you guys have done over there right now. Yes. And that, um, that's kind of uh, a good transition to what we, what I was mentioning about um, process scouting versus result scouting. Yep. Result scouting is pretty darn easy. Like anybody can look at Joe Burrow and say, he throws a lot of touchdowns. That that is a result, but really understanding why the things happen. Why is Joe Burrow so accurate? Yeah, some of Joe Burrow's accuracy is just in an eight in, in an eight unquantifiable measure of him just being able to put the ball where it needs to be uh, put at a, at all times. But mm-hmm. another part of that is he's got great footwork. He's got a great ability to navigate crowded pockets. Um, why, why is, why is Zach Moss so powerful? It's because he has an understanding of how to get low and to, uh, use leverage. Um, why, why is Andrew Thomas so good at pass protection? It's because he's got very quick feet and has a great ability to recover. So even if he makes a mistake on the initial punch, his feet are quick enough to be able, to be able to recover as long as the edge rusher isn't significant, isn't like somebody like Colavon Chasen or somebody really, really fast. He's all, right. always able to recover. So not just saying what, but why. And that, even for me, is challenging because football is a game with so many details in it. Like, have you have you ever, like, sat down and watched football with somebody who knows way more than you? And mm-hmm. they're able to see things that you don't even see. Like, they know a blitz is coming just by um, just by looking at the positions of the safeties. They'll, they'll, they'll stop the film, and they'll be like, this right here is going to be a nickelback blitz. And you're like, how did they know that it's going to be a nickelback blitz? Because the safety is rotated over the second receiver. The, the safety is going to take the second receiver, and the nickelback is going to blitz in. And then they press play. And then, sure enough, safety yep. goes to where he said he was, and the nickelback blitzes. There's so many details that you need to learn, and that's honestly been one of the great things about working with Searle, is that he knows a lot more of those schematic things. Like, he coached high school football. He uh, played more than, I ha- uh, more than I did. So we can recognize more of these things, and as me and all of our scouts do more of this, um, more scouting, we're going to be able to recognize more and more of those things. And another little little uh, key to our success is uh, every Wednesday night we have little uh, scouting sessions where um, we try to get as many of the guys together as possible, and we hop on Zoom or Skype, and we watch football. And that's really great to kind of watch football with somebody who knows more than uh, more than you, see what they're saying, learn about different words and techniques, because I don't know how many times I've watched, like, a player do something well, and he'll, like, turn his hips really quickly or do, like, a technique, and you just don't know the name of it, and you see this, and you know it's good or you know it's bad, but you can't put what you are seeing onto paper. And 
having less of those moments is crucial to becoming a better scout. Right. And one thing that I think I really, really liked what you just said there was the Wednesday night scouting sessions kind of thing. Like it, everybody has a strength and weakness. Like I'm guessing most people on your staff can scout pretty much any position, but for the most part, I feel like everybody has just a strength that they're good at. Like uh, Sorrow, he obviously, you said he's very good with the schematics and very good with all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure everybody in your staff is something a little something that they're talented at, either because they played it in high school or they coached it in high school or something about it. They are just talented at Like they're good at scouting D-backs or they're good at scouting offensive line play or whatever. And I think in situations like this where you get as many people as you can on a Skype or a Zoom call and you watch football together, I think that helps everybody because you're going to get somebody who knows something more than you, who knows something more than you have gone, just even something small like just basic offensive line play, and it can just help you later on in your future, in your career, and it just helps to share knowledge, especially in the scouting industry, group like this. It helps so much to just share, like, I noticed this, and I noticed this, compared to somebody who doesn't even notice that at all. It helps so much, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And you can see how, and you can see, like, how much it helps. Like, we, there are a couple people on our, um, on our team that are a little bit more, inexperienced uh than others mm-hmm. uh, we ha- we uh we had a guy that um we uh picked up from draft right and he's never worked for pff or sas or gotten any formal training but he lo- um he works hard and he loves it and he comes to every single almost every one of our scout meetings and he's been learning he's been learning so much like you can see a huge difference between his reports that he was putting out in May and the reports he's putting putting out now right. and like not only like being a part of this but actually seeing people improve and catch more and more things as time goes on like it's one thing when you see that you're doing you're doing a good job and you're improving, but it's another thing when you are putting systems in place and helping other people improve. Like that's going to be something that I'm going to really put out when senior bowl season comes along. Not only am I a, a good scout, I mean I like to think I'm a good scout. <laughs> I also know how to put together systems to help other people become better scouts. Right, and I agree with you. I think it's, it's the one thing, because for yourself, I'm not going to say it's easier, but it's a little bit different to improve your own stuff because you know yourself better than anybody does, really. So it's easier mm-hmm. to go, I get what I'm doing wrong here, unless you're just unless you're just kind of blind to it, but it's easier to go, I know I'm doing wrong here, I know I can improve on, and if somebody shows the way, it's even easier, too. But when you're helping somebody else out and... You have to build a system for them and put things in place and make things how to help them grow as a scout in your case. I think it's a whole new thing because you might know the person, like you might know the person, maybe friendly with them, but you don't know them as much as yourself. And it's harder to put things in place for them, put things in the right place for them so they can improve and they can grow. And I think it's a little bit harder, in my opinion, to do that. And I think when you do that, it shows like a really good, it sets a really good precedent for you and people that you work for yeah because ideally like let's say i decide to stay with expand the box score long term mm-hmm. um i um i've talked with the founder of expand the box score andy great guy uh he's a firefighter in in new york city brave guy like one, one of those like 
tough New Yorkers types. And yep. he said he wants uh, he wants to be able to ma- uh, maybe make like a full time position out of our um, out of the scouting department if we can sell enough copies of the draft guide. So there's actually a chance that I might stay there long term and um, work to build the thing. And that is kind of what I would want the um, mission statement to be: is essentially this is going to be the second step. We're, we're going to take. Uh, young scouts with experience working in places like PFF, SIS, Scouting Academy guys. Guys have already done their first step and put in some work, and we want to be that last little vault to get them to get them into the NFL or get them into real full-time positions. We want to build ourselves as have um, as being legit, so that when NFL teams see expand the box score on scouting on their resume, they'll be like, "Oh, he's worked under somebody who makes people get better." teaches them the de- uh, the details that other places might miss mm-hmm. and essentially kind of create kind of like an alumni bench, um, section like, oh, uh, Rob worked here. He um, worked on our 2021 draft guide, and now he's a scouting assistant with the Bengals. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. So that's kind of the long-term goal if I decide to stay, uh, stay there long-term. Ideally, I'd like to just use this – uh, place is kind of like a one-year vault up into the NFL or maybe uh, uh, get a spot on the draft squad for um, PFF. Both of those would be exciting, but it's hard. It's competitive, and I think there's a chance I could be there for a while. Right, and I know you've been doing this for a while, so I know your work ethic. I know you're skilled at it, and it is hard. But I, I really like that idea of what you said of building something for the second step almost. Because I think when people get into the sports industry, from what I've seen, and I've still barely been in it for like, I don't even know how long, not long at all. But when you get in the sports industry, from what I've seen, like getting in the door is obviously extremely hard. Just in its own right, getting your foot in the door is hard. But... Getting that next step almost is just as hard, in my opinion, because you can get your foot in the door and get just a small time role, but to get like an actual role, like a second step role that you're describing, where it's like actual work putting into it and actually being learning stuff at a legitimate level, I think it's extremely hard to get spots like that and to extremely hard to find somebody who is willing to teach you and willing to learn with you and willing to help you grow. I think that's like an, an incredible thing. I, I would love that for just like young people who are trying to learn and get into the industry. Yeah, exact, uh, exactly. So, I mean, the, like the first step is almost always unpaid, very, yep. very poorly paid. I mean, we, 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 uh, pay off of like, um, some Google revenue kind of things for articles. Like, yep. I think it's, uh, $1 for 500 views and not many things get, get that many views just yet. We're building, we'll get there. And then, um, I'm giving por- uh, portions, uh, like a percentage of the sales from the draft guide to the scouts. So if we sell 500 to a thousand, to a thousand copies and somebody writes 20 something reports, that could be just like an extra weekly check for uh, an extra weekly check or maybe even two checks yeah uh, to to compensate them for their work like that's something that i hope can one be able to uh be something to give people experience but i know a lot of people can't 
take free stuff anymore. They would need some type of money in order to make this happen. I'm almost getting to that point. Absolutely. I I can't agree with you more. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to make a dumb joke about, uh, hey, you got $2,000 I can have? Can you ask your uncle? (laughs) So it feels like, honestly, like I've I've noticed so much, especially – in this early sports industry stages when you're, when you're in, it's like you want to take these jobs because they help your career. But at the same time, you need to pay the bills and you need to get some kind of monetary uh, help from somewhere because these early jobs, they pay so little and they pay so not at all. And it just, unless you're putting out like 20 articles a day or some absorbent amount of money that nobody has really the time for, you're not going to be able to afford to do really anything or do much because the money is so little and it's usually either extremely, extremely low paying jobs or it's free work basically. So it really just kind of sucks sometimes that there's so few decently paying jobs to start off with. Exactly. And that's, uh, I guess that's another reason why we, we have a staff of, uh, we're trying to keep it around 12 mm-hmm. that, and we hope to have 300 draft, uh, 300 articles that, um, all you really need to do is one, one scouting article a week for, uh, during the summer. And then we ask you to have at least, um, 10 reports, uh, 10 good reports in the draft guide. So, and if you want to, if you want to do more, if you do more, you're going to get more money. So it's, it, it is very possible for you to have a full-time job or be in school full-time and keep up with your commitments with expand the box score. Right. I think it's a very fair, uh, ask of you guys. It's one, one report a week. I think is mm-hmm. more than, more than fair to, to me. Uh, and then having to 10, for the draft guide? Yep, and you have all football season um, and, like, the first couple, on like, two, three months for mm-hmm. in prep between when the season ends and when the draft guide will come out. Right, and how so, long yeah. do you, how much, how big do you want your scouting reports to be, Mr. Scouting Coordinator? Uh, 450 to 600 words is usually, is usually what we aim for. That's, you, fair. Uh, That's very fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I, we, I, but we need them to be deep. They need to be deep. They need to be good. Right. We need to know that you've been watching watching your tape. You like you need to be watching like four game uh, four games for offense alignment and players that um, impact every play. You probably need to be watching five or six for like a lot of corners and defensive backs and wide receivers. So like right. it's not just like something that you can watch two games of a guy and put it put something together. We want these to be actually quality right and quality yeah yeah i think that's more than fair 450 to 600 words is i think more than fair to me especially i mean take a day or two out of your week to watch so you watch three three games in a day or two and then another day to watch another three more games and that's six games for the receiver d-backs i think that and then write a 450 word to 600 word article or sorry report on these guys i think it's more than fair in my opinion i we talk about we talk about stuff before we start podcasting, and you never told me this before we start podcasting. So this is me just first hearing with this now. I think that's more than fair, in my opinion. I think that's really, really beneficial to the who are writing these articles. 
in my opinion, in my point of view. Mm-hmm. And it's really and it's really beneficial to us as well. Um, 450 to 600 words. Um, the format of our uh, articles, we would uh, you list the strengths of the player, you list the mm-hmm. weaknesses, and then we have a um, section specifically for things that we don't know about the players. This is where if you have a running back who never goes out to catch passes or never stays in the pass block, you can say. Hey, I don't really know how good of a pass blocker uh, this guy is because he has like three pass blocking reps a game, and right. that's another huge, huge stick um, sticking point. Philosophical idea is you can't evaluate something that a player doesn't do, and lots of people will confuse um, confuse things and think, hey, a player uh, doesn't doesn't do this, he must be bad at it. No, yep. a player isn't doing this, but the yep. coach isn't asking him to. And yeah, there may be some correlation in some of those things, but I would rather admit that we don't know something than think we know it something and be wrong. Right. I know we talked about that before with, uh, I think you talked about Justin Herbert and Tua, and we talked about a little bit about that where you kind of can't assume, uh, that he's good or bad at one thing or another because you haven't seen him do it. So as I see a lot of times, I'll look at draft guides, look at Sky Report in general. Sometimes after I do a scouting report to see where I match up with guys, and I'll see some people say, uh, like with the running back, for example, this is doing a lot now that there's an exorbitant amount of passes in the NFL. They'll say he's not a good receiver out of the backfield because he doesn't do it ever. And like, I I get where they're coming from because there may be a correlation, like you said, of he doesn't do it, so he must be bad at it. And I can, I completely understand where a human being and a scout would go. He doesn't do it, so he must be bad. I get that. I completely 100% get that. It's just human nature, in my opinion. But I think you need to go, well, you don't necessarily know that. Like, I've heard a lot of stuff about Melvin Gordon, because he didn't do it a lot, saying he's not going to see for the backfield. But he turned out to be not that bad at it, honestly, in my opinion. So I think exactly. it's little, you can't just judge based on not seeing it, in my opinion. Or you know I'm getting that. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then we have a section for scheme. This is a very important um, part yeah. that somewhat connects to uh, the what we don't know. Mm-hmm. But I think it doesn't make sense to know what a person's good at without knowing the context of the scheme that they're playing uh, that they're playing in. Absolutely, knowing that a wide receiver almost runs exclusively in breaking routes, in breaking or vertical routes, actually does tell you a lot about what uh, what that player is like. So knowing what he does, the overall um, philosophy of the team gives you a lot of insight on the player. Then we have an injury um, injury history um, spot, and yeah. this is this has been kind of my pet project. I want to go all out on injury history. I want to have the best injury histories of any draft gu- any draft guide because. Um, we added a doctor. Um, there is a doctor on staff at Expand the Box Score who does, like, injury um, risk assessments for fantasy football players. He's, like, an MD from Stanford. And I'm like, hmm, you know it would be nice? If he could give an injury risk assessment to all of the prospects. That'd I mean, cool. he understands, yeah, he understands sports injuries. So if we give him the tool, um, every injury, every mispractice that's publicly available, we can provide, that could be a huge value add. And then we have a one uh, one to two sentence summary of the player. Like, 
uh, like in one one sentence, what he's good at, what he's not good at, what type of system he would fit in at the next level. Yeah, I think it's all really honestly good in my opinion. I love the injury thing. There's a couple sites I visit where they kind of give the injury assessment risk, but I haven't seen it yet for college and kind of draft stuff yet. I I think it's a really good idea. I'd love to see it because I always see you know, a lot of draft guides and a lot of sky reports by people who I read. It says his injury history, and I, I know a decent bit about it because I know somebody who works in the medical field and all this stuff, so I kind of know a little bit about it, know general stuff. But to having an actual doctor with an MD who knows this stuff and who studied with this stuff and went to college for this, to give an actual assessment and an actual risk injury, transition the college game to the NFL game, I think is a really, really cool thing you guys are adding there. Yes, I'm. I'm really, I'm really excited. I think that's a really good um, value add, and uh, it's one of those things that I've actually just been kind of enjoying going, um, being like a de- <coughs> detective and trying to find injuries that other people might have missed. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I found out that Sam Ellinger's high school career ended um, with a significant injury. Like. How many people out there are going to be looking at Sam Ellinger's high school injury notes? Right. Yeah, he um, tore his medial meniscus in his left uh, left knee and his lateral meniscus in his right knee of his senior year in high school. Uh, I, I found out that uh, there was a running back. I forget his name. I think it might have been Jatarvius Whitlow. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Nope. Uh, but he broke his back his junior year. In high school? And, like, yes. Like, he, he had, like, a fractured vertebrae. And I'm, like, looking at this, like, I know it's in high school, and I know he's, he's like, recovered from it, but, like, that's that's got to be something that you can kind of, you can assess with, or maybe uh, there's a chance that it has an effect on things. That's why we have a doctor who can be able to distinguish, oh, a broken L5 vertebrae that he had when he was uh, 16 or 17, that is not an issue, or that is an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, really like that, especially now that you guys got guys like Justin Ross, who had a pretty significant injury, or not injury, surgery on his back mm-hmm. as well, backslash neck. As well, I think it's gonna be a really, really nice ad you guys got there. Yes. Uh, let's get into a little more football talk. Uh, there's a lot of going on coronavirus. Obviously, it's been around for since early spring, which was like late winter. Um, and with college conferences being afraid of that, and schools starting back up, uh, directors of college conferences, ads are all talking about what they want to do, and it seems like finally a lot have made a decision on this, and a lot have made the similar decision of removing out-of-conference play altogether, it seems like, and just going straight up, only conference. Big Ten is first to do it. I think SEC did it. ACC, they're all starting to do it now, it seems like. Only one I haven't seen is Big 12. Maybe they have, and I just missed it. But from a scout perspective, how is this going to affect things? Uh the people it's going to hurt the most are the small school guys. Mm-hmm. 
Trey Lance isn't going to have the opportunity to play Oregon. Um, guys in group of five conferences aren't going to have those games where they show out versus great competition. The, um, and like even like further down, like D2, D3 guys, they probably aren't even going to have a season. Like it's going to be really hard for them to maintain what draft stock, little draft stock they have when the only chance that they have to show what they have can do to NFL scouts would be at the senior bowl and at all-star games. Like I was watching Jaquan Hardy from Tiffin and this man broke like 14 tackles in one game. He was as dominant as you need a running back to look at a lower level for me to say, hey, this guy has a chance to be in um, to be in the NFL. But if he doesn't play any games, then he can't really prove uh, prove himself. There were things that I was looking at him to improve on his instincts. Um, too, too often he tried to play hero ball, mm-hmm. so it's like. If you're an NFL scout or somebody looking at this and you don't have any film of him in the past year, it's going to be hard to give him a good grade because, well, we talked about stuff, things you don't know. Everything's a thing you don't know for this year. Yeah. So, so that's going to be something that I'm going to be really, really sad about is not being able to see North Dakota State go against Oregon, not see, being able to see this group of five guys go up against the big boys and not being able to see some of the division two or division three guys, um, be able to perform. Like I, I want to know who the next Ben Barch is going to be. I, I want mm-hmm. that. I want that player to have that opportunity. Yeah. It, so. it, it really sucks to be the small school guys. Like one guy I was looking forward to see, and I only got a little glimpse of him during the conference game last year, forgot who it was for the life of me. But Dustin Crum from Kent State, the QB there, and I was looking mm. forward to him because he was supposed to play some legit big boys like Penn State was supposed to play the first week, canceled because Big Ten's not doing any con- non-conference games. And then he had Kentucky and Bama back-to-back, and he had legit games, but SEC, the SEC is still there, still doing non-conference games for now. But that's starting to worry me too with guys like him and guys like guys in the MAC, uh, Tony... Uh, I'm going to butcher his name. I know the name. I see him. Yeah, there it is. He's he just uh, he, he's the transfer portal. Yep. Yep. Transfer portal. I just put that down on our um on our sign up sheet. Yeah. It, yeah. Guys like this were small schools. Small schools are going to hit the mark most. So guys like him are getting out of here. Like I I want to get some scouting done on me. Some somebody to see me at least. It just sucks to be small schools. Yeah, the other thing that this uh, this will affect is uh, I'm almost 100% sure that these games are going to go on without any fans. But oh, yeah. um, how many, uh, what about press passes, media passes? I don't think it, they're going to be letting 100 people um, come to these games on press passes and photography passes. Like, uh, I was really kind of hoping uh, to go do my first in-game scouting of my life this year. I was planning on going down to Kent State to go watch Dustin Crumb because there Kent State is, yeah, like an hour away. And um, I went to college with the quarterback's coach um, at at a Bowling Green. Oh. Um, yeah, Matt, uh, Matt Johnson, the who, should, who according to PFF should have won the Heisman in 2015. <laughs> he had the highest wins above replacement that year. 
Um, so yeah, like I have some connections there. I would have loved to go down there, but I have no idea what the process is going to be behind that. The guys at Kent State don't know what the processes are going are are for that. And there's just so many things up in the air that like, yeah, small schools won't play big schools and scouts might have trouble actually might not actually travel to go see the players out of fear for the virus. Yeah, it it really, really sucks. Like at the NFL level, it's already started to take place of these really no, almost no press personnel on the sideline now. Like it's gotten basically nobody there at the preseason. Uh, temperature checks at literally every – if you go on the sideline, you'd be temperature checked by everybody. And as somebody who has worked in production and worked in basically media at these NFL games – it's already near impossible to get on the field within a decent time frame. I mean, decent, I mean, like 20 minutes. It takes you a, a while to get on there if you're first getting on there. So I imagine it to be even tighter security. There'd be barely anybody there, including production staff, including media, including scouts, for both NFL, because I'm assuming NFL, it's going to carry down almost a, a similar procedures from the NFL over to college level. It's going to be rough. Exactly. This is going to be um, a very interesting process. Uh, I hypothesized um, that this past draft year that um, a lot of teams were going to go by the book for their for their scouting um, because they wouldn't really have the chance to interview people and fall in love with people. So most teams would just stick with consensus. Mm-hmm. And I think that was pretty true besides Green Bay and the Raiders who just do their own thing. You're not like, about that game I didn't fall. Yeah. Um, God. But, uh, yeah, I feel most NFL teams really kind of, like, did what was expected of them. No one really did anything too crazy besides those teams that we mentioned. There weren't any super significant reaches, that many really big reaches. Right. Uh, obviously, besides the Packers, which you don't talk about anymore, because I I talked about it last week with Marcus Whitman, who's a Madden YouTuber, and got too frustrated. And we only talked about it for like 10 minutes. But, is that uh, that franchise guy? Yes, that is. Oh, sick. Hashtag fix Madden franchise while we're on, while we're on the uh, topic. <laughs> he, he was a little, little detour here quick. He was upset, you could tell. Just listening to him, it was like a 30-minute conversation. He was so upset. Oh my goodness! I don't. Blame him at all. I don't even at all. Exactly. It's a mess. Franch- franchise mode is what got us in love with Madden and helped us become in love with football in the first place. Mm-hmm. And we feel that the kids these kids these days aren't going to have that same awesome experience we had of actually being able to like scout players and know more about them than that their stiff arm is an A minus. <laughs> we had off we had offensive coordinators in Madden 04. And they don't have <sighs> coordinators in Madden 20. It's an offensive coordinator. It's what we talk about constantly when they get moved around. And it's just like, mm-hmm. how do you have rights to a, exclusive rights to simulation football when it's not even a simulation football game? Like, your, your Madden Bowl champion ran the ball every time exploiting a glitch with a left-handed punter handing it off to a running back. That's not simulation football. That's not football. No team would ever win a game with a left-handed puncher at their quarterback running the ball 100% of the time. Like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's, it's frustrating. I I was telling him about this, talking to him, and I'm like, 
I remember being a little kid, like playing like the Madden OX games, like 07, 08, 06, all those games pre 2010. And I'm like, these games are so good. I can't wait to see like, when I'm a teenager, like I'm 17, 18, and all this, to see how good these games are going to be. Like, the franchise, I'm like, can you imagine? Can you imagine all this stuff? I'm like, and now I'm here. I can't imagine going back to my younger stuff going, yeah, this is the best, this is the best it's going to be. And if we're here on, it's going to just go downhill. Like, I can't yeah. imagine that. It's brutal. Just brutal. give us what 2K has. Like, just that level. Like, if you can give us that level of depth, then we would be we would be more than happy. Give us that level of depth, and then you can put uh, 2 Chains and Little Yachty and Jack Harlow or whatever fancy rappers they want to put in the game um, for their other modes. Like They put in a Snoop Dogg this year, I think. Yeah, Snoop Dogg. And what is it? I'm sure whenever Superstar KO Madden Ultimate Team, they'll, oh, yeah. they'll do, they'll, I don't know, break Kodak Black out of prison because they think that'll help sell it to 16 year olds. I don't, I don't know. They're gonna mocap Kodak Black while he's in his jail cell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, enough about Madden because we'll go on for hours about that, honestly. We, you could talk about that forever. But, uh, yeah. We talked about your uh, number one linebacker, uh, Tough Borland, already. Uh, let's some other, we'll talk about Tough Borland as well, but you've, you've posted three articles officially. I know you've seen other film, so you've done other work. I know doubt about that. But let's talk about the guys you posted for now. We can talk about guys you got posted in the future, too. But uh, so you got Deontay Brown, guard Alabama. you got Tough Borland, uh, your number one linebacker. And we got Sean Wade, cornerback out of Ohio State, who's transitioning from slot to outside. Uh, let's yes. talk about Sean Wade right away. Uh, what do you think about this whole transition from uh, a mainly a slot cornerback last year to playing outside? Uh, well, he has all the tools to do it. He just has to do it. And when watching him play, like you could immediately tell that he has that speed that burst and just and just moves around the field like a top tier corner should. He's mm-hmm. also very physical, just always bumping and jamming uh, wide receivers. Just always has his hands on um, on his man. Now, what will be interesting is when he moves to the inside to the outside, is he'll probably have to play more zone coverage. And that was something I never really saw him do. Usually um, the Buckeyes almost always played with a single safety back. So it was like cover one and cover three. But when they were in cover three, he just still manned, manned up on his guy. Like it was very uncommon to see him actually go to a spot and drop there. So we're going to need to see if he can uh, consistently play good zone coverage or if they change their scheme, if he can continue to dominate in man coverage from the outside position. It's like one of those things where it's he has all the tools, he can tackle, he can run, he has got good technique, but can he move that skill set from the inside to the outside. If he can do so, he's going to be a first rounder. If he is unable to do so, well, he'll still be a really good slot corner and should still go in the first couple rounds. Probably right. Two, three. Right. I think no matter what, I think he'll probably be at worst a late second rounder from what I've seen. I haven't seen a ton of him. I've seen like one game, but uh, he seems like a quality cornerback to me, just based off what I've seen. And I think the transition from 
slot to outside, a lot of not basic football fans, but a lot of not in-depth football fans are really is how it's going to be a big transition for especially a college cornerback who mainly played only slot this past year. And the but year before be, that. Yeah, right. It's going to be a very interesting, especially with Jeff Okuda, who obviously uh, was one of the best cornerbacks in college football last year and probably was the best college football cornerback last year outside of maybe one guy I can think of. And then Damon Arnett, who's gone as well. It's going to be a lot on Wade's shoulders this coming year. Mm-hmm. And he'll have the Big Ten wide receivers are pretty good this year. He's going to need to go against guys like Nico Collins. I think he mm-hmm. might have Watt Fillier on the schedule. Illinois has a uh, has a really good sweeper wide receiver, a Matt Torbebe, a Matter Bebe. Yes, I think that's his name, a Matter Bebe. And he could mm-hmm. potentially play somebody like Rashad Bateman in the Big Ten championship game. So he's going to be going up against some NFL quality wide receivers, and he's going to need to hold his own. I mean, if I was a betting man, I would say, yeah, he should be able to hold his own, but. That's something that you don't know. It should be pretty easy to go. It's a lot easier going from slot corner to outside corner. Way easier to do that than like some offensive lineman being able to switch from left side to right side because that's like reversing your technique. So right, yeah. right. He can get uh, lucked out in my opinion, not getting to play against uh, uh, Rashad Bateman from Minnesota, man. And then he he kind of like schedule. I'm looking at schedule right now. He was supposed to play. Bowling Green, your favorite college, your alma mater. Uh, Oregon got canceled. Buffalo canceled. You got Rutgers, Iowa, Michigan State, Penn State, Nebraska, Indiana, Maryland, Illinois, and Michigan. So a decent receiving squad, but I think he could have played a much harder one, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I wish we could see him against Rondale and Bateman. Oh, it would have been a, a a nice competition judgment for him, seeing him against elite-level receivers. Yeah, and that's kind of another thing we're missing from this whole no-non-conference thing. Like, we aren't going to get to see um, Oregon versus Ohio State, so we can't see the Oregon has two good corners in Lenoir and Graham. We're not going to get to see them go against Alave and Garrett Wilson. Right. It it sucks. I I completely understand it. I'm not mad at people for doing this. I obviously get it. But it just sucks from a college football perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the other two guys you got here, and then we'll talk about some sleepers that you kind of are interested in. Uh, Tough Borland, we already touched on. You love him a lot. Uh, what are? Give me some a little bit more about Tough Borland. Oh, Tough Borland. Um, in case uh, you listeners didn't know, uh, he was being sarcastic. Uh, nope, Tough Borland is a um, linebacker from Ohio State, and like. It's kind of weird because, like, he kind of plays exactly like you think a guy named Tuff Borland would play. Mm-hmm. He's not fast at all. And you just, like, see how not fast he is just on the field constantly. But he hustles his ass every single play. And he generally has good instincts and plays under control and knows where the ball is going. He just doesn't have the speed or the strength to get there. So if he gets drafted, he's going to get drafted just kind of based off of him being a really tough tough linebacker, pun intended. Mm-hmm. He, like, recovered from an Achilles injury three months early, played through the pain, team captain, knows the whole playbook type guy, and that's obviously going to impress some coaches. But with how slow he is, 
how poorly he's able to navigate through trash. Uh, like he will be a huge liability to any NFL team on third down or any down that the team would consider passing on. This I do not see how this man is going to be able to cover Dallas Goddard or David Njoku, let alone Travis Kelsey or Zach Ertz. Right. So, and when you talk about, especially in the modern NFL, you talk about a linebacker not being able to cover just a basic tight end. Like David Njoku and, and Dallas Goddard, I think are a good tight end or solid tight ends in my opinion. But if you can't cover them in general, I think we're going to have some major problems because of how offenses are built these days. It's not like a tight end is playing in line all the time and basically just being an extra blocker. He's being pushed out wide. He's running routes a lot more often than they used to. And it sounds like I haven't seen Top Four. I have my scouting notes to scout him later on in my linebacker groups. But from what it sounds like, he sounds like he plays like how he sounds like he'd play. Like Top Four sounds like he's playing in between the tackles. He's going to stop the run. He's going to uh, play the gaps well, and that's about it. And he's going to be a tough dude and be a good leader. That's about what he sounds like yep. to me. Yep, make sure everybody is uh, make sure everybody is li- uh, lined up where they need to, need to be. He's not going to be making uh, any crucial mental errors. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but the other issue is is Tough Borland was often taken off the field on third downs because the Buckeyes have a lot of good linebackers. He actually split reps with Baron Browning, like so. Tough Borland was a two down linebacker in college. So theoretically, there is a chance that Tuff Borland, now taking a three-down linebacker with um, Malik Harrison, Malik Jefferson. I think it was Harrison. One of Malik, yeah, Harris Jefferson with the Texas guy. With yep. Malik Harrison gone, maybe uh, they move Baron Browning out to outside linebacker, and he will be playing the mic all three downs, and maybe he gets faster, and maybe with his instincts and smartness, he can kind of overcome that a little bit. But even if he does, like, the best I can see that is being, like, a fourth or a fifth rounder. That's kind right. of, like, my best-case scenario. If he, if he's still a two-down linebacker in college, his upside is being a good special teamer in the NFL. And you don't draft somebody to play special teams. Like, that's... Just not what you do, unless you're a damn good kicker. Right. Or Blake Ferguson. <laughs> uh, uh, with uh, Tough, he, yeah, by the way, you were right. It was Malik Harrison. He went to the Ravens this past year. But I feel like this is just my gut feeling with the NFL and what I've seen for the past couple of years. I feel like even with this massive analytics boom, I still feel like this team's going to look at him from a leader perspective from a run stopping perspective and like a tough perspective and go, this is the kind of guy we want leading our defense. And I wouldn't be shocked to see him being a fourth or fifth round pick just because of that alone. Like Specifically to the Oakland Raiders or the Vegas Raiders. Right. I didn't say it exactly, but it was what I was heavily hinting at, that John Gruden was going to love his personality. Exactly. Exactly. So... When Tuck Borland gets drafted by the Raiders in the sixth round uh, in the 2021 draft, um, just head over to at LucasShoe2 mm-hmm. yep. and at the football on Twitter and bestow upon us the praise that we deserve. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> One last guy before we get into your uh, underrated or uh, your little bit of sleeper guys, we talk about uh, 
Deontay Brown out of Decatur, Alabama, which I always love that city name. I always love it, no matter who goes from there. Uh, can you give me a little bit about him? I know he's a big boy. I know he's got some legs on him, but uh, give me a little about uh, Brown. Oh, he's a in, bit of an enigma. I could see him being a early second round pick, and I can see him falling into the sixth round. And it has to do with something kind of similar to um, Tough Borland. I'm not sure he can pass protect at an NFL level. Mm. So he's big. He's 6'4", 338. He moves very, very well for a man his size. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Alabama offense, he was often asked to pull, like, whether it be for misdirection or for powers, like 33% of the time. And he is quick for his size. Like, he's quick in general. Like, if he was 315, he, I'd still call him quick. So it's like you see the raw size, strength, and athleticism, but you don't see it being put into use in pass protection. And you just see him make too many mistakes for you for me to consider him, like, the next really good guard. Right. So that is my main concern with him. Right. And if your main concern with him is making mistakes in pass protection and not being good in pass protection, I think that's like the worst uh, concern you can have about an offensive lineman almost because of how much uh, offensive linemen are asked to pass protect the NFL now and how it's basically the most important thing almost an offensive lineman can do, it seems like, because obviously the pass game has so much value and the running game has so minimized in value from all this analytics and showing that the pass game matters more. And when you can't pass protect and you can't do it at a, at least a decent level, you're, I don't expect you to be this amazing offensive lineman, pass blocking offensive lineman with the perfect pass sets and everything in college. It's rarely going to happen unless you're Penny Sewell. It's a bit of a hard task for me to take you and to be high on you because of how valuable pass blocking is. Exactly. So it's like, Unless a team decides to build their identity off Leonard Fournette and A.J. Dillon and running 21 personnel, unless the team wants to truly invest into that type of scheme, it would be difficult to uh, for me to imagine him having success. But also, I mean, when you're scouting a player, when they have a full season left to go, there is a good chance that he can convert that his quickness in the run game into better foot technique in the in pass protection and a lot of his issues from pa- the pass protection side were more mental than physical so one of my notes is is that he too often gives up his inside shoulder in pass protection and that's one of the big things you don't want to do you don't want to let them beat you inside when you're a guard because if that happens he's right next to the quarterback so if he can fix his technique and maybe get his feet a little quicker, then absolutely mm-hmm. he can be a, a second-round pick, and he has all season to prove that he can do so. So, I mean, even at his best, is he going to be like a top-tier pass-protecting guard? No, but he can easily become good enough, and if you combine good enough in the pass-blocking game with a scary mauler in the run game, I mean, some teams, some teams going to pick, uh, sign up for that. Right. I can see him being like a day two kind of guy, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the, I'm a little worried, more worrisome with the past fiction, what you said. I haven't seen the, all the film on him yet. I still yet to, I have him in my 
uh, interior offensive lineman from my notes, so I'll get around to it eventually. Before season starts, at least, I hope so. But I think just the the pass protection is just so valuable to me. But uh, let's get before we get you out of here, let's get into some guys that you're higher on than you think the most, or some sleepers you like. Uh, just talk about some prospects who you uh, really are into so far, that uh, or maybe sleepers or anything you want to talk about. Yeah, uh, it's hmm. You're making me think. Mm-hmm. I think KJ Costello at Mississippi State is very okay. interesting. I like that one. I like that one. It's like I feel that every year we kind of like look at some air raid quarterback and be mm-hmm. and kind of like dismiss him. It happened with um, Luke Falk. It happened with Gardner Minshew, and this year it happened with who was the Washington State quarterback last year that PFF really liked? Anthony Gordon. Anthony Gordon, yes. Loved him. So with with um, how Gardner Minshew was a really big hit, that somebody like K.J. Costello, who had his experience in Stan- at Stanford's um, pro-style offense, and PFF really liked him his sophomore season and was like, hey, this is a really good sleeper-type prospect, and he can ball out in the air raid against the SEC – that is a, going to be a very interesting uh, combination, along with prototypical NFL size, because usually these Minshews and Falks and Gordons are either really tiny or really slow or have the arm strength of a 14-year-old, mm-hmm. Falk. Um, <laughs> having somebody who is prototypical NFL size and has traits, he could be a guy that can shoot up boards. Uh, same with Jamie Newman. I'm really excited to see Jamie Newman Me in too. a Todd Monken offense. Me too. Uh, I know a lot of people are thinking that he might be the guy who has a Burrow-esque rise, even though trying to predict somebody going from being an average SEC quarterback to the greatest quarterback in college football history and the greatest <laughs> season is always a stretch. Like, I hate the Kyle Trask is the next Joe Burrow. Jamie Newman could be the next Joe Burrow. Tanner Morgan. Like, no, nobody's going to be the next Joe Burrow. Um, we got it. We, we should probably retire that phrase before it even starts. <laughs> right. Honestly, it's, it, it always happens, I feel like, with these guys who have these breakout years going, who's going to be the next so-and-so? And it's like, guys, can we just let it breathe for a second? It was a rarity, and it could continue to be a rarity. Some guy, I'm sure, will be – it records are meant to be broken, I believe. And so I'm sure some guy down the line is going to break it, but it's meant to be a rarity. It's the reason why he had the greatest season in cultural history because it just doesn't happen. It rarely happens. Let's let it breathe a little bit, and let's not overhype these prospects and kind of get their hopes here and then show that we can just destroy them later on. Let's just let them grow, and let's see how good these guys are before we – Dub them the next Joe Burrow. Yes, and Kyle Trask can have a very successful season and definitely not be the next Joe Burrow. Jamie Newman can have a very successful season and have it be half of what Joe Burrow's was. Absolutely. If you, have, if you cut Joe Burrow's season in half, that could be a pretty good college football season for somebody like Jamie Newman with how Georgia runs their offense. Right, it's just... I get it. I get the hype. I get what you want to create narratives. I understand that. I'm not surprised. I'm not saying, oh, my God, why is this happening? I get it. But it's just a little bothersome at times. Uh, 
before I get you out of here, Paul, we're going to talk, talk about the scouting job opening you guys have. Uh, you guys have one scouting job opening available with you guys at Expand the Box Score. I just saw the other day on Twitter. Somebody retweeted it or something. Uh, Paul, why should people work for you at Expand the Box Score? Give me just a little elevator pitch as to why people should want to work at uh, Expand the Box Score, maybe. Okay, because it is the perfect second step um, position if you want to be a scout in the NFL or if you want to be a real media draft scout. All of our um, all of our systems, all of our um, methods and reports, and everything we do is designed to get people into professional positions. That is my goal. That is Searle's goal. Almost all of our scouts have the same vision of trying to go pro with this. We have access to all 22 film, and we are really organized. Like, we are already exceeding my expectations of what I thought that, uh, what I thought this could be. And if you're some, somebody who's writing, uh, high quality scouting reports that maybe aren't the most media friendly or maybe too, uh, gritty for the, um, the casual football audience. You should, uh, definitely get in contact with, uh, me at the football on Twitter or at Searle Penn 4 on Twitter. He is my partner. He's actually the guy going through all of the applications. And, yeah, see if this would uh, we can see if this will be a good fit for you this season. And hey, if it if it doesn't work this season, if we pick somebody else, we'll still probably keep keep you on file for when we try to do this uh, next year. Right, absolutely. I think it's a great idea, even if you really have zero experience doing it or are just doing something small. It really doesn't hurt to just put your name out there in general because. It, it just at least creates a contact in general. Even something small, like I heard Trevor Sikama on Locked On Draft talk about this, how creating a contact with somebody is so, 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 so important in just stuff like this. So it's a really good idea. Even if you don't believe, and if you don't have the resume or whatever to do this, just show you're interested at the bare minimum. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, contacts Paul, and... Oh, at yeah, the, yeah contact, contact him at, at the football, and what was the other one, Paul? Um, at Searle Pen 4 is my partner. Searle is C-Y-R-I-L-P-E-N-N-4. We're the, um, we're leadership for the, for this project. Awesome. I'll put the, uh, Twitter tags in the podcast bio. Paul, Thank you for coming on once again. We'll have to get you on later on this year as well, obviously. Talk about the draft guide, talk about more of the NFL draft. Paul, thanks for coming on, buddy. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on.